how does or how has forgiveness changed your life? I especially want to encourage you to puzzle over that question with respect to your relationship to God. How does or has forgiveness changed your life? What practical difference does forgiveness make for you, make in your life? I think you can find a way to some answers to that question, even by reflecting on kind of your personal relationships, maybe a relationship with a spouse or maybe a relationship with your, your boss or your employer. Um, let's, say, let's say you messed up at work and your boss noticed it. Uh, sure, he's displeased, but, but what if he told you something like this? It's going to be okay. Uh, we're we're going to work this out. I, I want you to know that I'm for you in all of this mess that we've got. There are going to be some hard things that we have to address. Some hard things we're going to have to go through. Sorting this out, it's going to take some time. But it's going to be okay. We're going to work this out. And I'm, I'm on your side. How would a conversation like that with your boss change your relationship with him? Would it make you more ready to bring kind of difficult decisions to him when you're uncertain? Uh, would it make you more ready to actually be honest with him? Would it make you more ready, be more ready to, to trust him? Would it make you more, be more ready to encourage fellow co-workers to, to actually go to him when they find themselves in a similar boat? Having a boss that is, is generous, one that's willing to help you as you make mistakes, even in the midst of your work, errors, wanting really to help you grow as an employee, as a person, changes, I think, how you relate to him and, and others, doesn't it? Or shouldn't it? I mean, the same is true with your friends who forgive you, your spouse who forgives you, or your parents who forgives you. Forgiveness should, should bring about a transformation in your life, in your human relationships. And the same is true with respect to your relationship to the Lord. The great Anglican minister, J.C. Ryle, once wrote, Let all the world know that the Lord Jesus will not cast away His believing people because of shortcomings and infirmities. The Lord Christ does not cast off poor sinners who have committed their souls into His hands because He sees in them blemishes and imperfections. Oh no, it is His glory to pass over the faults of His people and heal their backslidings, to make much of their weak graces and to pardon their many faults. If, if this is how Jesus deals with us, if He forgives us, and he does. Then how ought our lives to be transformed? Well, we ought to be more ready to confess our sin. More ready to seek his forgiveness. More ready to humbly wait upon him. And more ready to make his gracious name known. This is what we learned from God's word this morning. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 130. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 519. Uh, and I would encourage you to follow along and to look at the text. It'll help you uh, stay attentive to God's Word this morning. When you arrive at Psalm 130, you'll notice an inscription at the top. It says, A Song of Ascents. We've been in a series about the Song of Ascents. These are the 15 psalms or songs that Israelite pilgrims would sing as they went up to the temple in Jerusalem. They made their way to these 
three annual feasts. And these psalms were the songs they would sing on the way. They were probably composed at different times in Israel's history. But they were probably finally completed and finished, compiled together as a set sometime after the Babylonian captivity. These songs, we've been learning, they're actually useful to us as Christians today. Because like the ancient pilgrims who were headed somewhere, we too are headed somewhere. We too are headed home to glory, to the new Jerusalem, to the heavenly Mount Zion. And so these songs, as they helped the ancient Israelites keep their focus on the Lord, as they walked the road and journeyed, as they taught them how to be holy and happy and heavenly minded, so they teach us the same lessons. And today, as we study Psalm 130, we are reminded that there are not only enemies without, right? We saw that in Psalm 129, the one just before it. Like there are enemies against God's people. They're, they're out there and they're against God's people. We learn not only are there enemies without, but there are also enemies within, right? We do battle against our own flesh and our own sin from day to day and week to week. And Psalm 130, it actually opens up reminding us that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. But like so many psalms, this psalm moves from conviction of sin to confidence in the God of grace. And then even on to calling others to hope in God. As I read Psalm 130, see if you can kind of spot that trajectory of the psalm. How it moves from conviction to confidence to calling others to hope in God. See if you can spot the transformation that takes place in light of the forgiveness that the psalmist knows. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. The simple lesson that Psalm 130 teaches us is this. Forgiveness should lead you to fear God and help others find God. Forgiveness should lead you to fear God and help others find God. Now this psalm, you may have noticed, is arranged in four stanzas with kind of two verses in each stanza. And we're going to study these four stanzas under four headings. Cry out and confess your sin. Fear God, because with God is forgiveness. Wait and watch, for deliverance is coming. And fourth, hope and help others find hope. Uh, We're going to follow that pattern. Uh, There's an insert there in your bulletin that has an outline and a more detailed outline. If that's helpful to you in following along, great. If not, set it aside. And just listen and focus in on God's Word. Let's begin with our study by taking a look at this first stanza. Where we see that we're to cry out and to confess your sin. Read Psalm 130 verses 1 and 2 and see if you can spot that idea in the text for yourself. 
Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Well, these verses, they teach us to cry out and to confess our sins. And we need to cry out because our sin brings us into great trouble. Sin brings us down to the depths. The poetic imagery that the psalmist is using here is of a man sinking down into the depths, where he's in the deep waters, being swallowed up and surrounded by them, as it were. Uh, Similar language is used in Ezekiel chapter 27, verse 34, where we read this. Now you are wrecked by the seas in the depths of the waters. Your merchandise and all your crew in your midst have sunk with you. So the psalmist, the picture here is the psalmist is going, is drowning, going deeper and deeper down. He's crying out to the Lord out of those depths. Think of uh, the prophet Jonah, for example, who is descending to the deep after he'd been tossed overboard by the sailors. It was from the depths that Jonah cried out to the Lord God. And that's what the psalmist is doing now. But what has brought him down to the depths? It is nothing, nothing less than sin that has brought him down to the depths. That's clear when he appeals for mercy there at the end of verse 2. It's why he speaks of iniquities there in verse 3. The Bible plainly teaches us that sin leads to our descent into the grave. Sin leads to death. It's what the Lord God told Adam in the Garden of Eden in the very beginning. So in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. So for our working in sin, for our rebellion against God and His commands, for our living according to our own way rather than God's way, we will go down to the depths of the grave. If there is any spiritual life in you, seeing your sin will make you desperate for the Lord. That's what's occurring for the psalmist. Look at all the exclamation points in verses 1 and 2. There are three of them. Now, in the original Hebrew, there are exclamation points. We don't have these exclamation points. But what the English translators are trying to do is capture the desperate and the emphatic language of the text. So, for example, that language of, I cry to you, O Lord, in verse 1, can carry with it the idea, actually, of shouting. Friend, I wonder if your sin has made you desperate like this, where you've cried out to the Lord. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. Because you are desperate, and because of sin's deceitfulness, it's led you spiraling downward. Friend, I think that there might actually be hope in that desperation. Because if you don't see how desperate your situation is, then you won't start looking outside of yourself for help. If you're not desperate because of your sin, then you're deceived in thinking that you can pull yourself up out of sin. The reality is is that you are not strong enough to conquer your sin. It is an ocean that will swallow you whole. Who is stronger? You are the great waters of the sea. A few years ago, I remember sitting on the beach and seeing a young boy knocked over by the waves. And his situation was desperate. And if it were not for an attentive lifeguard who saw him and heard him, he would have been in deep trouble. He was rescued by God's grace. He lives in joy today. Friends, sin's waves are enormous. And you cannot escape them in your own strength. When sin brings you down, you must cry out. Call out to the sovereign God who can bring you up from the depths. 
Why does the psalmist cry out to the Lord? Because God hears the cries of his people. Think of the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, we're told that the Lord heard their cries. He remembered his covenant. And what does he do next? He calls Moses into his service to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. God acted on his people's behalf when he heard their cries. The Lord hears the cries of those who look to him in faith. Perhaps this is actually the first sign of faith. Our crying out to the Lord. Being honest with him about our desperate situation and sin. Have you cried out to God in the depths of your sin? Like the pilgrim on the road singing this psalm. Cry out to God for help. Now, if crying out to God is perhaps the first sign of faith, then crying out to the Lord, looking to Him, is the first sight of faith. Faith looks outside of itself and to the one who can help, the Lord God. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but the psalm actually moves back and forth between different lords. So you see there in the text, capital letters L-O-R-D, in one section, verse uh, 1 there, uh, and then verse 2, you see just one capital letter, L, and lowercase O-R-D. So the psalmist is actually moving back and forth in the Hebrew between two different lords, so to speak. Same God, but different aspects of his character. So capital letters, L-O-R-D, the psalmist is referring to, to Yahweh. That's the covenant-making, covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God whom he's referring to. And then the Lord Adonai, that's the lowercase, capital letter, capital letter L, lowercase O-R-D. The Lord Adonai, that has connotations of the Lord being master, uh, powerful. Uh, And and so this is who the psalmist is crying out to. He's uh, showing different aspects of the Lord's character. He's the the covenant-keeping God who loves His people, and then He's powerful enough to act for His people. He has a, a whole picture of the Lord and His character. He's appealing to the Lord Yahweh and to the Lord Adonai, the God who loves and the God who acts for His people, all the same God. He's appealing to God who keeps His promises and powerfully keeps His promises to His people. So when sin takes you down, who do you look to? Do you look to yourself and your own strength for your recovery? Or do you look to the Lord? Faith, real faith, looks outside of ourselves and to God. When you are on life's road and burdened by sin, look to the Lord. In particular, faith looks to the Lord for mercy, for relief. The word for mercy here it can be translated supplication or compassion. This is the cry of confession that the pilgrim has sinned and that God can help. Friends, I want to give you two encouragements in light of these two verses. Confess your sins. Here's the first one. Confess your sins to God and cry out to Him for help because His arm is not short. You might be tempted to think that you're too far gone. That you're out of God's reach. But His arm is not short. You might be tempted to think that you've gone down to the depths. There's no coming back. That God can't reach you there. You might be tempted to think that. But you're not out of God's reach. God's arm is not short. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 1 tells us, But the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. Friends, the Bible is full of God showing mercy to men and women in the deepest recesses of sin and wickedness. And God's arm is not short and you are not too far gone. Here's the second encouragement that I want to give you in light of these verses. Confess your sins and cry out to God to Him for help because His arm is not weak. His arm is not short 
And his arm is not weak. You might be tempted to think that your sins are too heavy, too burdensome, and that you are too broken. You might be tempted to think that your life is in a million pieces and that no one can put you back together again. But dear friend, the God who made man from a million pieces of the dust of the earth is strong enough to save you, to heal you, and to restore you. Jeremiah 32, verse 17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is Thou who hast made the heavens and the earth by Thy great power. Nothing is too difficult for you. God has loved and saved and restored adulterers, liars, murderers, idolaters, homosexuals, thieves, prostitutes, hypocrites, drunkards, swindlers, and more. The Bible is replete with their stories of redemption. So confess your sins to God and cry out to Him for help because His arm is long enough to reach you and is strong enough to save you. You should cry out to God and confess your sin. You should fear God because with God is forgiveness. That's the lesson of the second stanza of our psalm. Fear God because with God is forgiveness. Every psalm, I think, has a theological kind of center, a main idea, a gravitational pull, as it were. And I think this is it for Psalm 130, especially verse 4. Read verses 3 and 4 now. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. These two verses teach us the necessity of forgiveness, the availability of forgiveness. And the design or the destiny of forgiveness. Notice first the necessity of forgiveness. We see it there in the words of verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now remember this psalm. It's being sung by an Israelite pilgrim on the road to the holy city. Where he will go into the holy temple and meet with a thrice holy God. And as the holy city gets larger, as he approaches it, he's reminded of what he's going to meet there. Who he's going to meet there. He's going to meet the God in whom there is no darkness at all. The God in whom there is perfect righteousness, justice, and peace, and holiness, and truth. The God who will allow no unclean thing, no unclean person in his presence. Consider the word, words of Psalm 5, verses 4 to 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. He doesn't just hate the sin. He hates the sinner. The evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. All humanity stands guilty in the sight of God. Of this Holy God. So, so what would it mean for the Lord to mark your iniquities? It would mean more than God simply observing them, seeing, oh, that's interesting. No, that's not how God interacts with sin. It would mean more than God counting them. There's one, two, three, four, and on it goes. It would mean that God was keeping a record of your wrongs in preparation for your punishment. It would mean that God was compiling evidence for your prosecution, your trial, and your judgment. Were we to search all of our hearts, we would know that there are iniquities to be marked. In the words of Ezra chapter 9 verse 6, we can all say, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. 
My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. If God should mark the iniquities, then the pilgrim's journey to Jerusalem is a journey to judgment. If God should mark your iniquities, then your journey on earth is a journey to judgment. You're a dead man walking. The psalmist asks a sobering question, doesn't he? Who could stand? Who could stand up to the scrutiny of the all-seeing, all-knowing God? Who could withstand? Who could endure the infinite force, the absolute power, the immeasurable might, and the eternal wrath of God's just judgment against sin? The answer is no one. Do you see the sense and sense the necessity of forgiveness? If you do not have forgiveness from God, then you will not stand. You will not endure the wrath of God. Amazingly, it is at just this point that the psalm announces hope and the availability of forgiveness. That one little word, but. You see it there? Isn't it glorious? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There is hope because with the Lord there is forgiveness. Those two little words with you tell us that it's in the Lord's possession to forgive sinners. He's able to do it. He can freely give it in His mercy and grace. Daniel 9.9 tells us the same truth. Daniel 9.9 says, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. There's forgiveness with God. James Montgomery Boyce wisely said, You may not find forgiveness with other people. Your husband or your wife may not forgive you if you have wronged him or her. Your children may not forgive you. Your co-workers may not forgive you. You may not even be able to forgive yourself. There is one who will. And that one is God. What good news. You can live without forgiveness from other people, but you cannot live. You especially cannot live eternally without forgiveness from God. There is forgiveness with God. But what is forgiveness itself? What, what does it mean for God to forgive us? Forgiveness is when God pardons us of sin. And because of that pardon, He removes the threat of judgment and retribution. So think about Jesus, right? And His teaching in the, in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus, He gives us a glimpse of what forgiveness looks like. He, he likens it to canceling a debt. So in the Lord's Prayer, in Luke chapter 11, verse 4, we pray like this. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Our sin has incurred a debt against God. An eternal debt. A debt that we cannot repay. But because of Jesus Christ, God has canceled that debt. Forgiveness is extended by the offended party. That's why forgiveness is with God. It's not only part of His character. He's a God who forgives. But He is also the principally offended party when it comes to sin. When God forgives, He pardons us of sin. And because of that pardon, He removes the threat of judgment and retribution. That's what it means for God to not mark our iniquities. God will not count or hold our sins, our trespasses against us. Now to be clear, God does not wink at sin when He forgives. 
God does not rewrite or kind of erase history and say there was no wrong done here. Uh, Forgiveness doesn't say, you know, there really was no debt to begin with. If I can put it like this, forgiveness does not unsin sin. Forgiveness does not cancel corruption. Forgiveness does not cancel the immorality of the iniquity. No, the sin has to be dealt with justly. And that is just what God does in forgiveness, when He forgives. How? How can God forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, not clear the guilty, while at the same time maintaining justice? The answer is simple. God forgives or pardons sin by providing the payment for sin. This is also why forgiveness is with God. God can forgive sin because He provides the payment for the debt that our iniquity has incurred. And and only He can provide the payment. Who else can provide the perfect righteousness that God's law requires but God Himself? And God has personally satisfied the just requirements of His own law through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is how God can be just and forgiving all at the same time. Think of Paul, his declaration concerning the cross of Jesus Christ in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. In Christ, God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, that the cross of Jesus provides the payment and paves the way for pardon. God forgives sinners. He releases us from the debt of our sins through remitting those sins and their punishment onto His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the substitute who stands in our place and bears the punishment and the justice that our sins deserve. This is one of the implications of Jesus Christ from the cross. It is finished. When Jesus uttered those words in John chapter 19, verse 30, when He dies, He is declaring that the wages of our sin have been paid in Him and paid in full. The matter is settled. This is how the prophet Jeremiah and the writer of the Hebrews would say it. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So, how do you actually receive this forgiveness? Well, since forgiveness is with God, since it is His to give, you go to God for forgiveness. We we actually read earlier in the service, or heard read to us how we receive forgiveness. 1 John 1 verse 9 tells us with glorious clarity how we receive forgiveness. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Think about the psalmist here. He doesn't pretend, does he? Friend, don't pretend you're not a sinner. Just like William told us earlier in the service, we should not pretend that we're not sinners. You're merely kidding yourself. You're deceiving yourself if you don't think you need to be forgiven. And don't pretend that you can pay God back through your good works. Or that you can get out of the depths of your own sin. You can't. Your debt is infinitely large and the waves of justice, God's justice, are infinitely deep. What you must do is confess that you're a sinner. You must confess your sins. You must believe that Jesus lived a righteous life that you have not. That Jesus died the death that your sins deserve. And that He was paid your wages for working in sin. And that on the third day after His death, God raised Him from the dead and vindicated Him, proving to us all that we can be forgiven by turning from our sin and trusting in Him. Jesus went down into the depths of the grave for us and for our salvation. And He was raised up by the sovereign God so that we might be saved. Friend, go to God. 
Turn from your sin. Confess your sin. And believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Go to God for the forgiveness of your sins because forgiveness is with Him. Forgiveness is needed from God. It is available with God. But it also has a design or a destiny related to God. Those who are forgiven are driven to fear God. Do you notice the purpose clause in the middle of verse 4 there? But with you there is forgiveness that, it's a purpose clause, so that you may be feared. We thought about actually this concept a little earlier in our study of the Psalms of Ascent. Back to Psalm 128, verse 1. And in that study we recognize that sometimes people in the Bible fear God because they've sinned against Him. Uh, They're afraid of His holy anger and wrath. So think back to the Garden of Adam and Eve, where Adam and Eve sinned against God, and Adam hid. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, we're told, Adam says that, that I hid because I was afraid of you. So sometimes the Bible speaks about fearing God because we're afraid of His anger and wrath. But that's not what the psalm is talking about. The psalm is, is talking about a reverential fear. This psalm has a fear of God, a love of God, a delight in God. Precisely because we've been forgiven by God. See, that's the design of forgiveness. To lead us to fear God and love Him. We're forgiven not so that forgiveness may increase. No, but so that fear, the fear of the Lord may increase. That trust in the Lord and obedience to the Lord may increase. Fear is the design and destiny of forgiveness. So those who have truly received forgiveness from God fear to sin against God and displease Him. And so instead they live and serve and honor God with hearts of glad gratitude. That's why in Psalm 128 verse 1, if you look over to that psalm, you'll see that the fear of God is paired with walking in God's ways. Walking in God's commands. So the, the inward expression of the fear of the Lord finds an outward expression in obedience and love for God. God forgives us. He empowers us not to return to the depths of sin but to find our delight and satisfaction in Him. Dear Christian, fear God because with God there is forgiveness. The rest of the psalm actually flows out of this truth. The the next two stanzas of the psalm are the fruit of fear and being forgiven by God. So how how does a pilgrim live in light of his forgiveness? How is his life changed? How do you live in light of your forgiveness? How is your life changed? Well, you wait patiently upon the Lord in faith. And you invite your fellow pilgrims to hope in God. God's forgiveness motivates us to wait patiently upon Him and to watch for His deliverance is coming. This is the third lesson that our psalm teaches. Wait and watch, for deliverance is coming. Read verses 5 and 6 again. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His word I hope. My soul waits For the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. These two verses express great anticipation. The pilgrim anticipates God's great deliverance. Three times the psalm declares the pilgrim's soul is waiting. He's, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And then twice, twice more the psalm describes or declares that this waiting is even more eager than the watchman waiting for the sunrise. I wonder, have you ever waited upon the Lord? Have you ever waited for Him to act in your life in some way? 
has that waiting been long and trying? That's the pilgrim's experience here in this psalm. But perhaps you think to yourself, wait a minute. I thought he was forgiven. What is he waiting for if he's forgiven? Well, it's true that he has been forgiven. But we must remember that though we are forgiven of sin, not all of the earthly consequences for sin are removed. Think of Israel's history as an example. The people of Israel, they sinned and rebelled against God. In the book of Kings, we read about how they built idols and cultivated the high places. They became just like the nations surrounding them. And for their sin, the Lord God sent them into exile as a punishment. And while in exile, they cried out to the Lord. They confessed their sin and sought forgiveness. You can read of such a prayer in their exile in Daniel chapter 9. Now, after that prayer in that same chapter, in Daniel chapter 9, came an answer which revealed that actually more time is going to have to pass before Israel was released from exile. And of course, the true problem of their sin would be dealt with when the Messiah came. The the point that you need to understand now is that while forgiveness comes instantaneously, not all of the earthly consequences for our sin or not our current circumstance will necessarily change or instantaneously disappear. This is one of the reasons that the ancient people of God had to wait and why we often have to wait today. The ancient people of God had to wait for God to work His purposes out and to release them from exile and to send the Messiah. And we today have to wait for God to work His purposes out in our lives and to release us from our earthly exile and the return of our King. So we, we have to wait in the wilderness of this world, struggling with our sin, enduring affliction for our faith, and persevering in hope either until the Lord Jesus calls us home to glory or until He returns in righteousness and consummates history. We can wait because we wait for Him. Especially in our waiting, the Lord is good to us. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 25 and 26 says this, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. Now you may not think that in the midst of your waiting, but the Lord's doing something. He's fitting you for glory, preparing you to bear the eternal weight of glory, as Paul says in Corinthians. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. So our waiting involves our seeking Him. The writer of Lamentations goes on, It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Do you do that? Do you wait quietly? I have a difficult time waiting for anything, let alone waiting quietly for anything. But that's what the Scriptures commend. That's what this pilgrim is doing in the psalm. Is that what you are doing in your life? As we wait, we need to remember who we wait for. We wait for the Lord Yahweh, verse 5. You see that there? And for the Lord Adonai, verse 6. The psalmist is reminding us once again that we wait for our God who has personally committed Himself to us in His covenant promises while at the same time we are waiting for the God who is the master of the universe and is powerful to act on our behalf. (coughs) I wait for the Lord, the psalmist says. And he says as well, tells us where his hope lies. Do you see it there in verse 5? In the word of the Lord. And then he bookends it again. My soul waits for the Lord. I think we're to understand kind of a parallel between waiting for the Lord and hoping in the word of the Lord. 
Uh, God is as sure as His Word. And His Word is as sure as God. And we need to recognize that this, this hoping that the psalmist is talking about here is not kind of a, a wishful thinking. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into a, a, a fast food place and I'm going to order. And boy, I sure hope it doesn't take 15 minutes for them to get my order. That's a kind of a hope and wishful thinking. You know, the kind of the hope that the Bible talks about is a hope of certain confidence. This is not a kind of felicitous feeling. We're talking about a rock-solid confidence. One commentator put it like this. This is not a, a tepid, half-hearted trust. But the psalmist is all in for the Lord as he completely places himself and his need into the Lord's hands. After all, consider who and what the psalmist is hoping in. He's waiting for the Lord of heaven and earth and hoping in his word. He's confident in the God of the word and the word of his God. But what word of God is the psalmist placing his hope in? Is, is he hoping kind of in the forgiveness of his sins, right? He's going to the temple uh, to, to make a sacrifice for his sins as part of this journey to the annual feast. Is he, is he hoping in the word of kind of like Leviticus chapter 4 where it's talking about the sacrifices? If you offer them, you'll be forgiven. Or, or is, he, um, is he hoping for, for the promise that God gave in, in Daniel 9 that we talked about earlier, right? That the exile will come to an end. Or is he hoping in the multitude of promises of the sending of Messiah in a place like Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Read verse 5 again. See if you can figure out the riddle. What's he waiting for? I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. Waiting for the Lord, and hoping in the word of the Lord are parallel ideas, as I said. And I think that the psalmist, what he's waiting for, the word he's hoping in, is the promise that Yahweh made that He Himself would actually come to earth. Yahweh promised that He would come to earth in the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 to 5, we read these words. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Why does God need a highway? Why do you need to prepare the way for the Lord? Because He's coming to earth. It says, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh together shall see it. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. You remember how Mark's gospel opened up? Opened up with, uh, with uh, John the Baptist and it referenced Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. Or John the Baptist's preview is kind of announcing the coming of the Lord. That's because when Jesus came, the Lord of heaven came to earth. This was the ultimate hope of deliverance for every faithful Israelite. While they waited for God to keep His many promises, this word of promise brought ultimate deliverance. And brothers and sisters, we, we live kind of a parallel existence to a certain degree. Right? The Old Testament people of God were waiting for the coming of the Lord in His first coming. And we, we're waiting for the coming of the Lord in His second coming. And His word of promise related to His first coming is just as sure as His word of promise is related to His second coming. So when the psalmist speaks of waiting, we can think of we're waiting for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we wait, we, we attend to His word, we look at His promises, we hold on to them with hope. Remember, we serve a God who keeps His promises. While we wait, we also watch. When the psalmist speaks of the watchman there in verse 6, He's speaking of those men who guarded the city. In the ancient world, men would be posted on the walls of the city or on these watchtowers, and they were to scan the horizon day and night, remain on guard against any approaching enemies. 
It was much easier to watch during the day. The difficulty was watching at night. Not only did the watchman have to fight off sleep, but he also had to vigorously watch for any kind of movement on the horizon, or else an invading enemy army could surprise and attack the city at night. This is the kind of watching that the psalmist has in mind. Active, attentive, eager, faithfully doing his job, while longing for the morning to come. And what the psalmist is saying is that he longs for deliverance even more than that watchman longed for the coming of dawn. Is this you? Do you long for the night of our earthly exile to end and the day of our final deliverance to begin? Do you long for the sun to rise from his throne and bring the long, dark night of our earthly exile to an end? Do you long for the coming of the Lord Jesus? Do you pray, come, Lord Jesus? What does it look like to watch and wait like this? We actually read about it earlier in the service. We read from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. We wait for the blessed hope, and while we wait, we, we watch our lives and our doctrines. We remain holy and pure before the Lord. We renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and we live unto the glory of Jesus. And we look for the coming of our Redeemer. This is what it looks like to watch and wait for our final deliverance. And beloved, be assured, deliverance is coming. The night has an end. The sun always rises. It always rises because God is faithful. Every day, the rising of the sun should be a reminder to you that God will be faithful to His promises to deliver you. He has set a time. He has appointed a day. He has promised and He who promised is faithful. So keep waiting and keep watching. Your deliverer is coming. Deliverance is certain. As Martin Luther so wisely said once, those who wait for the Lord ask, for mercy, but they leave it to God's gracious will. When, how, where, and by what means He helps them. This is why we have hope. It's why we should help others find hope in Jesus Christ. This is our fourth and final point. Hope and help others find hope. This is another way that your life should be changed by the forgiveness of the Lord. Read Psalm 130 verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Not only does forgiveness lead to fear, and lead to waiting and watching for the Lord in hope, but forgiveness also leads to us helping others find hope in the Lord. What these verses show us is that individual hope in the Lord leads to extending an invitation for others to hope in the Lord. Notice how the psalmist calls out to all Israel there in verse 7. The traveling pilgrimage. He looks around at his fellow pilgrims and he exhorts them to sing and to sing with hope in the Lord. Christian, when you gather here, here to sing the corporate praises of God, you're encouraging and exhorting your fellow believers to hope in the Lord. And they are exhorting and encouraging you. We need this week by week. And we need to be inviting others into this hope week by week. Since you've been forgiven by God, and since you will be eternally accepted by God, be bold to invite others to hope in God. Be bold to invite your neighbors, your friends, your family members, and your co-workers to know the forgiveness of the Lord. I, I heard a statistic earlier in the week that I was somewhat surprised by. Uh, this gentleman who was encouraging believers to anonymously send tracts 
to their friends and family, neighbors and coworkers. They had this website you could just plug in their information and go off anonymously without being tied to you in any way, shape, or form. His goal is, of course, to kind of help Christians share the gospel in some way, shape, or form. But he said, uh, he did a study, he said that 90% of evangelical and professing Christians do not share the gospel. So if that statistic were true, then that would mean that out of our 100 members, only 10 would be sharing the gospel and inviting others to church. By God's grace, I know that there are more than 10 of you who are speaking of Christ. And that's, I think, because you are so grateful for the grace of God in Christ that God has shown you. And I want to encourage you to keep going. And I want to encourage you to help others find hope that is offered here in the psalm. Well, I mean, I want you to see these phrases that we're about to look at and think about how, how can I actually share that with a friend who doesn't know the Lord? Christian, we, we want to tell others why there is hope. That little three-letter word for in the middle of verse 7, it's an explanatory word. The psalmist says, hope in the Lord for, here's a reason why. And he gives actually three reasons. See the three reasons there in verses 7 and 8? You can hope in the Lord because with the Lord, there's steadfast love. There's plentiful redemption and redemption from iniquities. With the Lord, there is steadfast love. We serve, the God we serve, is the God who loves us with a committed, covenanted love. It's a love that can never fail because He can never fail. He loves us with a love that's not fickle, but faithful. He loves us with a love that's like any other love. His love is dependable and devoted. His love is firm and fixed. His love is resolute and relentless. Beloved, when we share Christ with others, let us be sure to invite them into this steadfast love of our God. Let us tell them that He, that he loves us with a love that will never leave us or forsake us. Let us tell our friends and family members and, co- and co-workers and neighbors that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing stronger and more sure in the entire universe than the steadfast love of the Lord for His people. As you share Christ, hold out the steadfast love of the Lord. As you share Christ, hold out the plentiful redemption that verse 7 speaks of. Uh, That word plentiful carries with it the idea of great, very many, much, large, a large amount. The word redemption means to purchase and set free from bondage. There's more than enough grace and mercy in Christ to pay for all of your sins. And this is the hope you hold out to your friends and your family members and neighbors and co-workers. When they're rightly grieved and bewailing their sins. They say, no, 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 I'm too far gone. I've sinned too much. You can tell them, oh friend, you, you don't understand. Christ's blood has fully satisfied the wrath of God for your sin. You can tell them in the words of one Puritan minister that there's more mercy in Christ than there's misery in you. You can say in the words of two contemporary poets... There is no sin that you have done that has such height and breadth. It can't be washed in Jesus' blood or covered by His death. There is no spot that still remains, no cause to hide your face, for He has stooped to wash you clean and cover you with grace. This is the hope that we have to offer, the boundless riches of Christ's redemption. And the third reason that we have hope and can help others find hope is there in verse 8. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. 
the idea of redeeming or redemption here is the same idea as there in verse 7, right? Purchasing and buying back. But the advancement of the hope that verse 8 gives us is the certainty and the completeness of redemption for God's people. Hear the language of verse 8. And he will redeem Israel. Beloved, he will do it. The redemption of God's people is certain. It is not in doubt. Jesus has paid it all. And what, what will he redeem his people from? From some of their iniquities? No. Christ's redemption is complete. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Your sins, not in part, but the whole have been nailed to the cross, and you bear them no more. Beloved, offer the complete redemption to the lost around you. It is your hope, and it is the hope that you should help others find. And if your friends and family members or coworkers are nervous about being rejected by Jesus because of their sin, tell them the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He won't reject you. Come to him. Redemption in Christ is certain and it's complete. And this is the hope that we have within us and the hope that we should help others find. And as we conclude, we should consider again how forgiveness should change our lives. Psalm 130, it shows us that not only should our relationship to the Lord experience transformation because of his forgiveness, but so should our relationship with others. Because there is gracious forgiveness from God, you should eagerly and honestly confess your sins to God. Because there's gracious and generous forgiveness with God, you should go to Him and be forgiven by Him. Because there's gracious and generous forgiveness from God, you should humbly wait upon the Lord for the final day of your deliverance. Because there is gracious and generous forgiveness from God, you should help others come to know and experience that same forgiveness. Beloved, the Lord hears, the Lord forgives, the Lord delivers, and the Lord redeems. In light of the goodness and grace of our Lord, may we fear the Lord and help others find hope in the Lord. Let's pray for that grace now. Let's pray together.